It is with excitement that I get to share with you that the Leukaemia Foundation has developed a new resource. This resource is called the Online Support Service, where it provides a wealth of services to assist a person living with blood cancer throughout their patient journey. So whether you're a patient who has just been diagnosed, in treatment or in survivorship, this service provides access to targeted learning modules, a suite of amazing services and online programs. And you also have the ability to chat with an experienced blood cancer support coordinator at just one click. It gives people a personalised and intuitive way to learn about important topics, including what to expect beyond treatment. This service is simple to use and is filled with content curated by the Leukaemia Foundation for people with any type of blood cancer. It notably features a digital energy coach to help patients manage fatigue. So jump onto our website and look up our new and exciting product called the Online Blood Cancer Support Service. Hi, and welcome to the Leukemia Foundation's podcast, Talking Blood Cancer. My name is Kate Arkadiff, and my role at the Leukemia Foundation is a blood cancer support coordinator. We provide emotional and practical support to people living with blood cancer and their loved ones. Our support is offered throughout the many different stages of a blood cancer journey. While listening to this podcast, we will share the stories of people we have connected with who have faced blood cancer so that you, our listeners, can gain insight, find purpose and take inspiration. The Leukaemia Foundation acknowledges the traditional owners of the country throughout Australia and recognises their continuing connection to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. This story may contain content that some listeners may find difficult and challenging. We encourage anyone listening to take care of their own mental health and well-being. The purpose of this podcast is to share the real-life stories of people living with a blood cancer, and any discussion of medical treatments is not an endorsement. We encourage you to seek the advice from your treatment team if you have any questions regarding your diagnosis, side effects, or treatment. If you would like to talk to someone or even if you would like more information on our services or on today's episode, please feel free to contact 1-800-620-420 and someone will be able to connect you with your local blood cancer support coordinator. So let's get into today's episode. In our latest episode, I speak with Lauren Manigola, who in 2011, at the age of 21, was diagnosed with AML. After a number of gruelling rounds of chemotherapy in 2012, Lauren underwent an unrelated bone marrow transplant. And just as life was getting back on track for Lauren, 11 months post her bone marrow transplant, Lauren was told that she had unfortunately relapsed. Lauren was angry, and rightfully so, at her situation, and she knew the challenge that laid ahead of her. It was her family and friends that played such an important role in helping Lauren decide to give life another chance. The challenge next was to find a bone marrow match in the world. 
and Lauren and her family had to search high and low. This is truly a remarkable story and one that represents how important it is to have a village of support around you. So welcome, Lauren. Thank you for coming today. Thanks for having me. Oh, that's okay. Well, thank you for being on. And usually, as we um, always are, we start an episode by asking the guests to share where they're, where they're living in Australia, who's in their family, and what and when they were diagnosed. Yeah, sure. So I currently live in Perth, Western Australia. Uh, my family, I've got my mum, my dad, my older brother, older sister, and younger sister. So I'm middle child. I was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia in 2011 when I was 21. Yeah, wow. And so how old are you now? So how many years since diagnosis? I turn 32 tomorrow. Um, oh, so, <laughs> thank you. This is a great time to be doing this. And I'm eight years in remission. Wow. Wow. And so eight years ago, how how did this kind of all begin? You know, being what in your very early 20s life, I have no doubt, was full, full throttle. So how did everything kind of unfold for you? Yeah. So I don't think I'll ever forget the day that it all kind of unfolded. I guess I'll, I'll tell you a little bit of the backstory and how it happened. In the lead up to this day, I remember getting bruises on my body, which I thought at the time was from netball. I remember feeling very unfit because I think I played a game of netball and I just felt like my lungs were really heavy. And at that time, as I think any 21-year-old would think, I just thought that I needed to work out more. So the next day I went for a run and the same thing happened. I came back and told my mum that my lungs were really heavy again. Um, the next day I went to a chemist and tried to ask them for bruising cream because bruises had popped up all over my legs and I had a ball that weekend. It was actually the chemist that advised me, instead of giving me bruising cream, they said, you should probably go talk to your doctor. So I booked a doctor's appointment that next morning. By the time I went to the doctor's the following morning, I started to get little red dots all over the bottom of my legs, which I thought was very strange. I had no idea what that was. I um, went to my local GP and he immediately sent me for blood tests. He didn't say much at the time. Um, I had those blood tests done and then that afternoon I actually was on a date. I was about to go out with this guy and go to gold class and see Transformers at the time. Um and the just before I went in, I got a call from the doctor's surgery saying that I immediately had to come back. And I, at the time, typical 21-year-old was just like, no, 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 it's fine. I'll just, you know, I'll come see you after the movie. And they're like, no, no, you need to come back now. Uh, that got me kind of worried. So I left mm. the movies, went home, got my parents. I told them what was going on. They came to the doctor's appointment with me. Um, when I got in to see the GP, he said, I, it's, looks like you have leukemia and I need you to go straight to the hospital to get further tests done and you probably going to have to take an overnight bag. You might be there for a while. Um, I remember thinking, I have no idea what leukemia is. Like I just, I was speechless. I looked back at my parents. Yeah. I looked back at my parents and they were speechless for the first time. They always have lots to say. Um, they knew exactly what leukemia was. I had no idea. Mm. So yeah. from then we went straight to the hospital. I was checked in. Um, 
the next few days were kind of like a blur, but essentially treatment, chemotherapy treatment started days after. And then from then onwards, I found out with more testing that I had um, a specific subtype of the acute myeloid leukemia, which meant chemotherapy alone wouldn't be able to cure it and I had to undergo a bone marrow transplant. Wow. And so, and within all, as you say, like the, you're, you're one minute you're at the movies and you're living life as a normal 21-year-old and then all of a sudden you're thrust upon, given this, you know, very heavy news, life-altering news to then end up in a medical world, in a hospital. That just must have been, yeah, so just completely shattering to your to your world as a 21-year-old. Yeah, all I could think about at the time, and it's quite funny when I look back on it, was I can't go to the ball this weekend. Like I wasn't thinking long-term. I still didn't – I think the diagnosis didn't actually settle with me. I didn't really understand still what it had meant. I didn't really know how to tell people either, so I think my parents called up my family members to tell them, and my brother at the time was living in Melbourne working, um, and I'm pretty sure he jumped on like the first plane to come back. Um, but wow. it, yeah, it was yep. so out of my world. Like it, I think I was in shock for the first like couple of weeks of that, not really knowing or understanding yep. what was happening. It was probably the scariest time. Yeah, absolutely. And how did you tell your friends? Like, or yeah, how did you I, um, break that news to them? It was funny for the first when I was first diagnosed. So I told my closest friends to begin with, but. I think because it was so hard for me to comprehend, it took me a very long time for me to tell people that weren't in my close friend group. Um, And I think that was just the more people I told, the more real it became for me. So I kind of tried to avoid that for a little bit. Um, My friends were amazing throughout the process, so they're very supportive. Yeah, I think as you you said there that you're right. The more times you verbalise it and you say it out loud, it kind of sinks down into that next layer in your brain to go, ah, oh, yep, this is reality. It's that that next because you're, you're responding to people's reactions, you're coping with how they're feeling and they're interpreting and, and taking on your news and it's another another layer for it to sit with you. Yeah, exactly. And at that time I just remember my family being around me and being supportive and then eventually I think my friends, I started seeing them sometime after it wasn't in those first couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah. So you said that you started treatment basically st- straight away. How was treatment treatment for you? Yeah. So apparently when I was admitted, my blood counts were so low. And this is the reason why I was getting those little dots on the bottom of my lid. I think mm-hmm. my platelets and blood yeah they were close to like 10 or something crazy so the first thing they did is just like pump me through with blood products um then a couple of days later started chemotherapy and I remember I was so incredibly sick from that first um lot of chemotherapy and the way they explained it is because I the chemotherapy was attacking the leukemia but the leukemia was aggressive and all in my body so therefore, the mm-hmm. first round is always apparently the hardest and you, you get the sickest from it. Um, yeah. It, honestly, it was a blur back then. I, yeah. d- it went so fast. Apparently, I was in a hospital for about four or five weeks for that first round of chemotherapy. And then after that big round, I came out of hospital but then went back in for smaller rounds like every few weeks or something. Yeah. 
Yeah. And then when it, how, how were you when you came out of hospital? How did you feel within yourself, you know, physically and um, mentally as well? So it's a really interesting one to kind of reflect on. The mental part for me didn't come until after the bone marrow transplants. Like I somehow mm-hmm. managed to just get through it all and then I was hit with all this emotional trauma afterwards. I think I just was dealing with the physical side effects. So coming out of it, I had so much nausea still. I was on a myriad of tablets every single day just to cope with these side effects. Um, and before I knew it, I was back in hospital with an infection or getting ready for the next round of chemotherapy. So it's, I don't know, in a way, it's kind of a good thing I didn't have the emotional going on at the same time because I just needed to deal with the physical and the emotional stuff came later. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I've sat in front of many people and I have heard the exact same thing that you've just articulated is that yeah, you're almost, you're just surviving. That's where mm. you, you, you almost, you go, I've just got to shut down mentally so I can physically survive the next day, the next mm. hour yep. and what's presented in front of me. And then, yeah, it's, sometimes it's not until things are done, people return home or, you know, uh, the the acute treatment is finished that then, yeah, it's almost like the semi-trailer truck <laughs> comes and hits you with that emotional baggage of, oh, my, what have I just been through? Yeah, I can definitely say I was hit with the emotional trauma after each of the bone marrow transplants that I went through. And it was something that I really struggled with and needed counselling to kind of get out of that um, mindset. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And then so you, and you, you, you mentioned that you had a transplant um, the, the first time and um, what, was it a donor transplant? Was it a related donor? So I, the first transplant I had was two umbilical cords they advised me that due to oh, my wow. weight, yeah, due to my weight that this <laughs> made sense to them. I think I was mm-hmm. very hard to match a donor with. My siblings weren't a match to me. Okay. I think in the registry at the time, they didn't have a lot of options. So they said, let's go with the two umbilical cords. Uh, we didn't really know much about it. So we went with that option. Yeah. Um, the recovery to bone marrow transplant is the most toughest thing I think I've ever been through. The actual transplant itself is completely fine. It's just like a transfusion going into you. It's what comes after that. You've got your 100 days after a transplant where you're very immune compromised um, and you have to recover, but you have to be very careful. You're on so many different tablets. You are on immune suppressors as well. I remember there was times I couldn't even get out of bed from that. Um And I think for each bone marrow transplant I went to, it was five weeks in hospital without even being able to leave. You were stuck in a room and limited visitors because they can bring in so many different germs as well. Mm. Yeah. And and how did you go, like I'm just thinking of, you know, people that, you know, are in their early 20s and 30s or, you know, at any age really listening to this as to how did you go as to not – you know, seeing people going on throughout life um, living, you know, um, and then you're here stuck in bed going through this fighting for your life. Did, was that ever a challenge for you or, as you said, you were just busy trying to survive? Oh, it was 100% a challenge. I remember in the beginning I would encourage my friends to come and see me and visit me, but then after a time it actually made me like a little bit depressed seeing them come and go and go back to their normal lives. And I couldn't actually mentally deal with that. So Mm. 
I actually asked my friends to stop coming in and seeing me. And at the time I told them it was just hospital restrictions, which it wasn't. It was just me trying to mentally cope with what was going on. I um, was very lucky at the time as well. So my brother quit his job and he came back to Perth and he set up all these amazing systems in the hospital for me. So he set up like a Nintendo Wii, got me like an Xbox. He set up all these TV shows so I was never bored. They took it in shifts so my siblings were constantly in and out of the hospital, morning, nighttime. Um, My parents always had the day shift. So in terms of, I guess, staying connected to the outside where I tried not to because the more I stayed connected, the more I'd feel stuck. So instead I lost myself in TV shows and all kinds of games. Yeah. Yeah, so you were protecting yourself, really. That was one of your coping and protecting mechanisms. Yeah, definitely. And so physically, how you, you know, five weeks post-transplant, you got out of hospital and then you said, you know, you had that hurdle of rebuilding yourself. Did you find anything that helped you either stay, I guess, um, you know, kept your motivation up and, and kept you pushing forward or, or were there something that you felt you implemented that really helped you through that first that first time? I think just taking every day as it comes and trying to do little things. And it's funny that I'm preaching this now because it was people at the time that were telling me this and I would always want to push further. (laughs) But, yeah, Yeah. (laughs) listening to your body at the time and trying to give them that time to recover and actually just reflecting and realising what you went through was extremely traumatic and you're just not going to bounce back like a 21-year-old should bounce back. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that, yeah, we've said that so many times to people, just listen to your body, take it slowly. (laughs) You know, you have been, acknowledge what you've been through. And I think that that's a big thing because I think, you know, you've you've gone through life, you know, you've gone through this and you've almost put a, a pause on life and then you've been given this, you know, you've gone through, had your transplant and you just want to get back to what life was. But I think it's acknowledging, A, what you've been through and that B, life will never quite be what it was pre-blood cancer. Exactly. And at the time as well, and I was incredibly grateful for this, but I, because I was 21 and not yet 22, I qualified for a Starlight Foundation wish. So I was approached when I was in hospital and told yeah. about this. And at the time when I was diagnosed, I couldn't even deal with that information. But when I was starting to recover, I came back to it and I was able to start planning what I wanted to do. I think that got me through some of that recovery phase and what I ended up planning was going over to the Gold Coast with my partner at the time and my friends and going to a music concert as a 21-year-old would (laughs) Um, and my wish incorporated meeting some famous artists there. So that was a distraction and also a way to kind of get through. Yeah. But a goal that you had to focus on and something that lit you up and excitement to add back into to your life and to work towards, not just hospitals, medical. Yeah, I think definitely I think that was something I needed to distract myself and have a goal because I didn't – there was nothing else. I couldn't control my physical health. I couldn't control anything else going mm. on around me. But there was this one thing that I could kind of plan and be as creative as I wanted to with. Yeah. Yeah, wow. 
That's amazing. Yeah, I think that there's something really in that to say, yeah, to find something that sparks your joy to work towards to help you get through those really tough times and days and and to give you that little motivation to, um, yeah, get out of bed on those days that I'm sure you just did not feel like it at all. Yes, and like I said, I was so lucky apparently because I was diagnosed at 21 but in a month's time I would have turned 22 and then I wouldn't have been eligible for this wish. So it was just timing and and the way it all had happened at the time. Yeah. So we've kind of alluded to listeners that, you know, the the transplant wasn't um, the the double – umbilical cord wasn't your only transplant so you went how how many months post-transplant kind of what unfolded post-transplant so for you it was 11 months after that first transplant that I just had a routine blood test I wasn't feeling any different and my hematologist called me had you gone back to work no no I hadn't gone back to work I was just in the recovery phase um yeah I got a phone call from my hematologist to ask me to come in because there was just some uh, results that looked a bit off. Um, Mm. And that, I remember at the time, it was summer. It was just close to Christmas. I remember that phone call and my heart was pounding. And I kind of was like, I don't want to go in. I don't want to know. I think I knew what the results Mm. were going to be before he told me. But alas, my family... (laughs) Um, came with me to that appointment and that's when my hematologist told me that I had relapsed. Um, And that was just too much for me at the time. I didn't even, I don't even remember that appointment and what was said, but I think the treatment options were discussed with my family. And at that point, I think I kind of just checked out and wanted them to take control and make those decisions because I mentally it was just too much um yeah yeah what ended up happening is there was talk of another bone marrow transplant um but first we had to get the leukemia back into remission and at the time Mm -hmm. there was a clinical trial that they wanted to put me on um and it was my choice whether I wanted to do the clinical trial or um the typical relapse treatment that they would put me on and I could not make this decision, so I left that decision up to my family members who had a meeting with the haematology team to do, to decide. Wow. Um, and they decided to go with the clinical trial, which I was completely fine with. Um, we went ahead with that treatment option, and the clinical trial didn't have the desired effect of putting me into remission. So we ended swapping back to the typical um form of treatment that you would have for elite AML relapse which did have the desired effect and I did go into remission but then it was back down to this bone marrow transplant route which Mm. going through one transplant and knowing exactly what happens and what's to come the idea of having to go through that all over again I just part of me just didn't want to do it I it was so mentally hard to make that decision it wasn't for my family telling me that I have to do this and keep fighting. I don't think I would have. Yeah. <clears throat> and you know too, like you just went through it. Like it's not like there's years in between. Like it's you're backing up for a marathon just as you finished it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you hadn't so, even finished it really. I know. So once I did get on board with it, I was able to physically and mentally get ready. But 
the decision in doing that again, it weighed with me so heavily because like you've just said, I know exactly what's coming. There wasn't as much time in between those transplants to mm-hmm. kind of prepare myself for what I was about to go through. And in my head at the time, I was like, it's just going to be as horrible as the first one or worse. I, I had no idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think too, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, it's a, a lot of people, I should say, they really do. They really struggle whether do do I do transplants or or, or or do I not? Because there's the fear of, of what if this fails? What does that look like? What is it going to do to my life? Um, what life will I have left? It, it's um, it's a really tricky, uh, you know, a really tricky and tough decision to make. And it's not, you know, you had your family behind you backing you as to what you should and shouldn't do. So that that again, it's it's some for some people it's welcome pressure for other people they don't they don't want to be a part of it but um yeah it must have been a yeah you must have been in a in a big you know a spot of turmoil to make that decision do you do it again I am so glad my family pushed me through that decision because at the time there was another lady in my ward that was going through something similar and she relapsed and she chose not to go through the mm-hmm. second transplant and her family to this mm-hmm. day still regrets that they didn't push her harder. So considering everything that I've gone through and knowing and looking back, it was the best decision I think I could have made because I chose life. I chose to fight and it worked well for me. Yeah, and that's it. I think that's yeah, you did. You chose to fight and everybody that chooses a transplant or or what they they yeah they've chosen they've chosen the the fight they've chosen to step up and take it on and so how did you said you know that you that a struggle was maybe getting a match the first time how was that the second time so this is where it's, it is funny to reflect back on it so the first time I was when I got diagnosed I didn't really want anyone to know so by the time we've come to this relapse and I'm about to get a second transplant. And the doctors have told me again in the registry, we don't really have many people that are a match to you. Um, this is when I thought, this is a time I can use my story to appeal to the world, to get everyone to jump on the bone marrow registry, to raise some awareness, maybe find a match for myself. And if not myself, for someone else out there that's really struggling and, and not in my position to do so. So before I knew it, I had this conversation with my dad and he knows um, some close family friends that were in the media. And I think it was like the next day I had channel two, seven and nine in my room doing interviews in the hospital. Um, wow. Promoting my story, just getting it out there and telling people to join the bone marrow registry. I had my Patreon bus stops all around the city. I had all these news articles done about me and shared all around the world, trying to raise some awareness and get everyone on board with it. Um, it was, yeah, it was wow. incredible how That's incredible. how much support flowed through from that as well. I had so many people contact yeah. me on Facebook. Yeah. I had a veteran come into the hospital and give me his like lucky hat from war. It was, yeah, I was overwhelmed. Oh my god, <laughs> with that support. Wow, and then did wow, and did that also then kind of reaffirm that? Yep, I've made this decision. Like feeling that those people rallying behind you did that kind of help you get through those those moments of questioning yeah 100 percent. i i like i said i was so overwhelmed and grateful for their support and had 
so many people contact me and, you know, just giving me some hope or, or trying to, you know, just bring positive mm-hmm. vibes to it. Yeah, yeah. What a stark contrast, as you said, you know, the first time you kind of, you closed it off and you kept it all insular and you, it, it worked for you at that time and then you've experienced this other, this other, you know, once you've relapsed, this other side of it where you've brought everybody yeah. in and felt that energy and felt that, you know, that uplifting, people uplifting you when you, you may not have even you know that you needed it. I know. I know. It's so funny to reflect on knowing how particular I was about the first when I was first diagnosed, to then going mm. on the news and spreading it with the world, basically. Yep. Um, but it did have a desired yeah. effect and we did get more people joining the bone marrow registry and they did find a donor that was unmatched in the greater European area. Yeah. They still will not tell me exactly yeah. where. <laughs> um, yeah. They never do. I ended up, they they ended up finding a male donor that was a bit of a mismatch but worked perfectly at the time and that's the eight years in remission is from that second transplant. Wow, how amazing. That's incredible. And did you have to go through many treatments before? Like, I mean, I would imagine that that process of trying to find a donor and for many people that's such a worrying time and you knowing that there wasn't one out there and you had relapsed and that, um, you know, really you were hoping on the greater good of the world something for someone to pop onto that registry how was that time for you yes you had that positive energy around you but was that an anxious time for you waiting yeah definitely I think we even had to do an extra round of chemotherapy in between just to see if we could get another donor I think always though there was talk about there might have been um, one potential donor in the registry, but they weren't really happy with that match. It was too mismatched. Mm -hmm. So they're like, Mm -hmm. we have options. We're not really happy. We want to keep trying. Um, That's when I think at that time we started getting extended family tested, knowing that they probably wouldn't be a match because the the more extended you go, the harder you're going to try. But we, we kept... We kept searching and searching and eventually this one popped up in that greater European area that was just a a slight mismatch in the end. How was that recovery compared to last time and and what was and what how was that for you? Did you So that was yeah, that was extremely tough again, but it's it is interesting because the second time round I kind of knew some tips and tricks and there was one thing that Mm. I just couldn't go Please through share. again yeah <laughs> anyone out there that's listening yeah. <laughs> um, the tips and tricks that I kind of learned so in the first transplant I was taking 32 tablets a day and I physically could not get them down and if I got them down they would just come straight back up again one tablet in particular called Valtrex yeah. I yeah. took that 16 times a day during my second transplant, I actually said to my hematologist, wow. I refuse to take this tablet again. This was the tablet that made me sick all the time. And just by me articulating that to him, he was able to then tell me there is an alternative one that you can take. And it was just a couple times a day that then I was able to move on to that. Wow. So there was little things that I was able to negotiate mm-hmm. in the second transplant that made it easier to kind of get through. Yep. small wins so do you think of having that not 
Yeah, exa- but huge wins. Like <laughs> yeah. going from 16 tablets of a day of something you couldn't handle to then being, you know, able to reduce that is dramatic in a, you know, in your world when th- that's one of your biggest challenges. Do you think that, you know, um, you kind of, did you have to almost become your own advocate and find the importance in your voice or having someone to be able to voice things for you to help make that journey with the doctors and the medical system that bit easier? I definitely probably advocated more in the second transplant, but my dad was my advocate the entire way through. He had my back. He would get things done. If things weren't happening, he would chase up doctors, nurses. He would have private meetings with them to discuss what was going on. And he actually, I gave him the authority to do that. He, it was completely fine. I was happy with him doing that. And majority of the time, he made things happen faster. If I was in pain and no one was doing anything, he would actually follow them up and make sure that I was given paid medication or whatever treatment that would help me at the time. I definitely think you need someone advocating for you. In all those appointments that I've been to, I've told you how sometimes the news was just too overwhelming and I would just tune out. I always had someone there. It was majority, mostly my parents, sometimes my siblings. They absorbed that information and they were able to answer my questions Mm -hmm. later when I was ready to say, well, what's the actual treatment plan? What actually was discussed? Um, and I think that's very important. That's perfect advice. Yeah, I think it's really yeah, important to I have agree. someone there for you. Yeah. Yeah, you're so right because your brain does shut down and, you know, two sets of ears are better than the one and we all hear things differently and interpret things differently. So that, yeah, I 100% yes, agree with that advice as well. Did you what – what other tips – what other differences and tips and tricks did you also um, utilise and – hold on to through the the second transplant? So I think, well, this isn't a really tip or trick, but my I found an amazing haematologist, mm. someone that I really connected with that was my vibe that actually negotiated me with, with me a little bit. I remember there was one point that he went on leave or he was away and I had to see somebody else that was more senior and had no flexibility and I remember how like closed in I felt. So I just kind of want to articulate how important it is to find somebody that you're really comfortable and happy with. And he was my haematologist that entire way through. Wow. Yeah, there has to be a relationship, Mm. not a one-way street. It's a two-way street and you have to hear them as much as they have to hear you and uh, you have to feel comfortable to be able to do that. And I think in the second bone marrow transplant, I took advantage of the cancer support services more which I don't think I did in the first one so that meant staying more connected starting that relationship with counsellors and what that could look like outside of hospital and that's how I started talking to a counsellor for a couple years after that first transplant Um, just getting back out into the world and not necessarily putting pressure on myself to go back to work because I knew that wasn't really something that I wanted but maybe thinking about something else I could do, which led me down the path to go to university and study something completely different. So I guess just setting goals for myself was something to look forward to, which over the years that I went through all of that was something I hadn't really considered. I was just doing the day-to-day for so long that I didn't even know how to kind of look into my future and and plan. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's something that I do hear quite a lot is that people do really struggle to plan and to look and to look forward. But I think that it, as you know, we've we have discussed with people that it's it's not about a big giant goal. It's about even looking at your little goals that can help you edge towards, you know a bigger goal whether as you say go to university but if if you can't function and stay up and, and and walk to the class well it's setting yourself a little goal about going okay well today my my aim is to walk to the end of the street and yeah. and, and chipping away at that to, and that helps us aim and and hit that big goal at the end yeah definitely small goals the, the energy and exercise one, that was something that took a long time to rebuild. And I had an exercise rehabilitation coach helping me as well because it was very, very tough. Mm-hmm. Um, but over time, I set myself bigger goals and I decided that this was a few years after the, tra- the transplant that I wanted to compete in triathlon. And I wanted to really get that. Oh, wow. To the strength that I once had. Um it took a very, very long time, but I made it there and I started competing in triathlons with my younger sister and doing all their 12K runs for charity and going back to netball and getting back out there, which it's, it was the most amazing feeling doing things like that. Yeah. Oh, and did you think, say, first transplant, second transplant, recovery, first, first recovery, second recovery, that you would ever get back no. to doing that? <laughs> no, I never thought I would be able to yeah. do anything like that. I would always say that I'm never going to get better and I, I couldn't because it's such a slow process after each transplant. You can't even mm-hmm. imagine. Like I, it, it probably takes a couple of years just to get over one and I, it's so slow that you think I will never be at the pace that I could run before. I will never get back to sports. Um, mm-hmm. But for all those listeners out there, it is possible you just have to be very, very patient and you have yeah. to start very, very slow to kind of build yourself back up. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's right. You have, you have to pace it. You have to, it takes its time and you've got to, you've got to also be committed to the cause mm-hmm. as well. You've, you've got to put in a little bit as well um, to, to help you get to, to get you back there. So. And how have you gone now? So, you know, you said you're eight years you're eight years down the track, which is just incredible. You're running triathlons. I don't even do that. <laughs> I haven't been through a transplant. So you're absolutely amazing and a superstar in my eyes. But how – and you said you went to uni and studied a, a new degree. How has that in life – have you – you've um have you returned you've returned to work I'm I'm assuming yes yes so I'm working full-time now I still struggle a little bit with fatigue every now and then and I can pick up viruses because my immune system isn't like any other adult around me so I do struggle every now and then but I just really listen to my body and when I am really fatigued I just take a nap Everyone knows around me that I nap. I need to nap to get through with some days. Um, I have to be really cautious around sick people. My friends and family know me so well now that if they are sick or coming down with a cold, they'll just let me know and we'll just reschedule. Uh, It's the same with public transport on the way to work. I'm just hand sanitizer this entire time. Pre-COVID, I was obsessed with hand sanitizer. The fact that COVID happened... And everyone is now more careful with them doing it as well. It just makes me happier because that means that less yep. germs are kind of spreading and going around as well. Yep, absolutely. 
I do think, yeah, in one way COVID has has opened the world up um, and given insight into what life is like for an immune-suppressed person Yes, and um, how germs and a simple cold can be just so threatening and um, change the course of one's one's journey. So, and then so what, um, how has, you mentioned fatigue and, and kind of needing a nap and things like that. How has, has work been adaptable or has have were those conversations ever tricky to have? So, I've had a few different jobs since I went back to full time and they have been quite flexible, but I did I was always hesitant to tell them straight off the bat what had happened to me because I didn't want them to treat me any different. However, the recent role, the one I'm in at the moment, I had that conversation fairly early on and my HR manager was very understanding and flexible and we were able to accommodate the fact that I do get more tired and tend to crash in the afternoon. So, at the moment, I start earlier in the morning and it seems to work for me. So, I do early morning and then come back earlier in the afternoon when I seem to crash, which is fine because I'm on the train anyway. Um, So having that flexibility and being able to voice that's really important as well because I need to keep adhering to this and listening to my body. Otherwise, I do find if I push it and I do try and do that every now and then, I end up catching a cold and getting sick and that will take me out for a couple of weeks at a time. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's so powerful and I, I think people don't realise that, you know, the uh, a cancer diagnosis and back into the workforce, it goes almost hand in hand as a disability. They have, you know, workplaces have to accommodate where they can and as much as they can to ensure that they can help keep you within that role or or within, within employment. So people, um, yeah, the, most people are quite accommodating um, workforces. And especially with COVID these days, it's shown Mm. the world that we can, you know, we can work from home, we can still do our role. So if anything, COVID has shown employees that we can be more flexible and we can be more accommodating. Absolutely. Absolutely. And how has life been, you know, as someone that within their 20s that, you know, a lot of 20-year-olds' lives look very different? Mm. How How has that and that juggle been for you? So I still feel a little cheated. I feel like I lost a good four-something years to cancer. So, but that didn't stop me. I felt cheated. I felt like I lost those years. So I tried, I wanted to regain those years. So when I came out of it, I decided to make this bucket list where I would just tick off all the things that I wanted to do. So I think on my bucket list was travel to Croatia, go to the Greek islands, island hopping, travel solo by myself to Europe. Skydiving was on my bucket list too, which took me, I was actually very scared about that one. It took me, I think, until last year to finally do that. Um, well. But I just wanted to experience everything at once because I felt like I'd missed so much. And I really yeah. did. I just took every opportunity I, I could to travel, to enjoy the world, to see all the sights, do things that I'd never even imagined I would do before skydiving I never thought I would do that but it was on my list and I had to tick it off I had to do it (laughs) yeah oh and is there many things left on that bucket list or have you completed it no there's just a couple things left and I don't know when I'll get to do this but one of them was just having a white Christmas so it's on the list it could have happened but COVID got in the way um yeah 
I am getting married at the end of this year as well, which is super exciting. So that it wasn't on my list. That's just something that's happening. Yeah. But something that was on my list was would have been to go to the Maldives. And that's what I would have loved for, uh, for our honeymoon. That will just have to be yeah. on hold for the moment. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Maybe make it your five year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh. And then so being so young and being, you know, 21, did they ever discuss fertility at all or were you able to preserve eggs? Yeah, so I remember it was discussed very early on that fertility options, I think they came and discussed with me that if I did try and preserve some eggs at the time, which I probably should because bone marrow transplants or chemotherapy can make you infertile. Um, when they presented this to me, they said, if you do choose to freeze some eggs, there's some chance that you could um, freeze some leukemia at the same time. And then in the future, if you were to go through IVF, there's a chance you could put that back into your body. So that was problem A. Mm. Problem B in this scenario was that I didn't actually have time to do that. The, the leukemia was so aggressive. I think they had to start treatment right away. So a 21-year-old does not think of these things. At the time, I didn't care. I just said, do whatever you need to do to get this cancer into remission. It wasn't until years later that I thought more about it. They did, through both bone marrow transplants, try and protect my ovaries with an injection. It mm -hmm. didn't end up working. I think after the second transplant, um, I went into premenopause, which was devastating at the time. Um and even more devastating now that I'm 32 and considering a future family, all that kind of stuff. So I guess at the time just it was not on my radar, but then years later I've reflected and looked back and realised, you know, there was nothing I could do even if I yeah. wanted to. Um, but for somebody so young to have to go through that and, and deal with all those menopausal changes, the hot flushes, everything that comes with it was – it was horrible. <laughs> yeah, it's another it's another thing that you have to deal with that blood cancer has dealt you. Yep. So it's yeah, it's something on top of yeah. chemo. So my life since then will never be the same. There's going to be adjustments, and there's just going to be considerations. So if I do want a family, I will have to go down the IVF route. But I'm pretty lucky. I've got these two amazing sisters that will donate their eggs to me. They will support me. My family will, will do whatever they need to do um, Yeah. so I can go down that route. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and it is. It's a big thing. And I think that there's a lot of light that isn't shined on infertility mm -hmm. and cancer, you know, and cancer because there are a lot of people out there that are diagnosed um, in their teens, you know, childhood, um, uh, you know, 20s 30s or even 40s that haven't had children or haven't weren't weren't given the option or that there wasn't the time to um preserve um their fertility and it's a real big loss for people and it's a it's a really tough challenge to overcome and um but I know that there are many people that have gone before you and have been able to go on and have babies and go through that fertility journey but yeah it's definitely another issue that um needs more of a voice I, as well I think you're right I think it definitely needs more attention we did my partner and I did go to an IVF clinic recently that was local to us and they were doing bulk billing and they're still doing that however there's a lot of tape red tape involved there in the fact that 
when I went to see them, they actually couldn't cater for my circumstance. They were only looking after women that um, had IVF themselves and didn't need donor eggs. So there is a lot mm. more attention that needs to, to happen to this. And I think, I guess, articulating it more and over time, we will get some more funding to yeah. be able to help more people going through this. Absolutely. And I think that, yeah, it's definitely something that, yeah, it's not your in your, your fertility issues have been caused due to the chemotherapy and the treatment, you know, plans that you've been on, not because of biologically, you know, you, you've had some struggles. But, yeah, I think getting some light and getting some um, opening, yeah, getting cutting down that red tape is really exactly. yeah, I agree what needs to happen. Exactly. Yeah. So you've been through an incredible journey and I think that, as you've said, that it hasn't been easy and, and, you know, your physical and your fatigue levels did really struggle, but it sounds like it was slowly but surely you got there. Mm-hmm. You got there in the end. What's, um, is there anything else that, you know, you'd, you'd like to touch on or that you think that you'd like to share with people that are, that are listening? I think as yeah, I think definitely one important thing throughout that whole process that I went through was just never give up hope. Just always keep fighting. Mm-hmm. Um, and having people around you support you is really important as well. I can't imagine trying to go through that alone. I needed them when there were times that I, I couldn't deal or that I needed some help getting through it. So they were really my advocators and kind of got me through all of it and I think just, yeah, take every day as it comes. Never push yourself too hard. That's something that took me a long time to sink in and kind of <laughs> realise for myself. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sometimes when I reflect on this and as I'm talking to you now, it doesn't even feel like it happened to me because it did happen a while ago, but also it was such a blur at the time. Like I remember going through it was the most horrible thing I've ever been through. But when you come out of it and when you get back to your life and you move on and you can reflect on it and be like, that was a tough time, but it's completely changed my outlook on life. It changed my perspective. I now celebrate the small wins in life and don't get too caught up in all the drama and everything else going on in the world. And I truly believe that I've become more empathetic from going through something like this. It's probably why I decided to um, study human resources and, and now work in human resources <laughs> to help employees. Yeah. Yeah. I um, Yeah, I think I have a better understanding of the world and, and an understanding of what other people are going through as well. And, and something that I've learned is you never know what someone is going through. You never know what they've yeah. been through in their past as well. Um, mm-hmm. A comment a colleague made yesterday morning when they knew it was my birthday this week is they thought I was in my early 20s which was amazing I love that um so they had no idea what I've been through but I'm hoping that this podcast will help people going through what I've been through and create some more awareness around it yeah well that's amazing because you're right you people don't you can't look at somebody and think oh they you know, you can't assume, yes. never assume, you know, yeah. you look at you today and you, and you do, you know, I can make that assumption, oh, well, she looks really healthy. But to know that the daily struggle is definitely still there and the dints in the armour from a blood cancer are still there, but um, you, that's it. You've still got your armour on and you're still pushing forward and um, and living life to 
to the best and and, and according to your bucket list. (laughs) Yeah, which I definitely (laughs) want to complete. And I'm just so happy that my hair has come back so healthy and strong. I'm, this is one crazy thing, but I don't think I'll ever get a haircut again. I want it to yeah, grow it's not crazy. down to my knees because I missed it that much through chemotherapy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's huge. It's huge for huge for anyone and especially women to lose to lose their hair and it's also another sign that there's something not quite right and that you must be ill if you don't have your hair, your eyebrows, your eyelashes. I think that for me was the hardest thing to deal with. I could deal with a lot of the symptoms going on, but to lose my hair as a 21-year-old, that was something that was just so draining to me and just so, oh, I was so devastated because of that. And I was, I lost it, regrew, and then I lost it again. So that, yeah, that was the hardest thing, I think, during that time yeah. to kind of get over. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the people that are listening to this, that they'll, that are, you know, have lost their hair or gone through this, they'll understand that. They yes. Will. But it grows back. It comes back. <laughs> and I can be a test. I can test to that because Lauren's hair it's is so very long. long, luscious. <laughs> it is. It's really, really long. Yeah. Um, well, I can't, I can't thank you enough for your words, your wisdom, your pearls. And I think, you know, you, you really highlighted some, you know, important things, how important it is to engage with the mental health team to help you get through those, those times and that it's, and to acknowledge what you've, what you've been through. And, and, um, and as you say, the trauma, this is for a lot of people it is, it is very traumatic and um, not only for patients but carers as well they're they're witnessing um, a loved one go through that so I um, I am a big um, obviously where I work I you know I am a big believer in having a mental health team as well as a physical team to um, get you through this journey thank you so much Kate for having me I really support everything you guys are doing and I want to support however I can in any events or anything you guys are doing for the future Oh, well, thank you, Lauren. I can't um, thank you enough. It's been a pleasure, a pleasure talking. That brings us to the end of this episode today. We hope that you've found it helpful in some way. And if you would like more information on our services or today's episode, please feel free to call 1-800-620-420 and someone will be able to connect you with your local blood cancer support coordinator. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Kate Arkadiff and you've been listening to the Leukemia Foundation's podcast, Talking Blood Cancer.